invite you to join in with me as I turn to the fourth gospel, John, the apostle's gospel. Although he never names himself in this gospel, he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And also uh, the John we'll be discussing this morning, we'll be talking about the John the Baptist, as he's commonly known. And as I've said to you before, John's writings, whether it's his gospel or epistles, are difficult sometimes to outline because he doesn't, he doesn't write in a linear way uh, so much as it's more of a looping way. He, he's already mentioned John the Baptist, and now he comes back to him again. But it's that repetitive nature that has the strength that we, we use in sewing. It's stitch upon stitch, and that's how he writes and he's here to present one. He's here to reveal who the Christ is. That is not only John, the apostle, the human writer of this gospel, but John the Baptist, who we'll be looking at this morning. So we're going to be looking at him as he was, in fact, the cousin of Jesus Christ. He was born uh, six months before Jesus was born. So the information in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke about him are sort of woven in with the prophecies given to Mary with the birth of Jesus. So there's relationship there. There's a close proximity of time when they were born. John comes out of the wilderness at 30 years old. Jesus comes into his full-blown earthly ministry at about 30 years old. So there's a lot in common there. And as John said in verse 15, as we double back, John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, you see that's in birth, ranks what? Before me, because he was before me. So that attestation of his eternality, this who John will spend the rest of his gospel revealing to all of us and to all of the world. That's what he's focused on. He's not here to redouble the efforts that have already been clearly spelled out in the synoptics in terms of the genealogy of Christ and in terms of all of those uh, early records of his birth and so on. He's picking up with in the beginning was the word. So we're dealing with the logos as he is revealing who he is. So these are three important days in the life of John. You can look at uh, the synoptics that deal with John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3 talks about John the Baptist. We learn more about him there. Um, Mark 1 to 8 talks about uh, John the Baptist and Luke Luke chapter 1, 5 to 25 and also 57 uh, to 67, where he is uh, being born, and then 68 all the way to verse 80 of that chapter in Luke is Zechariah, his father's prophecy of his son, John the Baptist. So those are some other places where you can look to pick up more information about John the Baptist, and we weave all of that together. John, uh, the the author, the human author of our gospel here, the fourth gospel, uh, as was called, uh, is actually uh, really just trying to get us right out of the gate with not only Jesus, but John the Baptist as well. So a lot of the sort of background 
biographical information is you'll have to find in the synoptics. So after his birth, he disappears, of course, into the Judean wilderness, some 30 miles east of Jerusalem, the Transjordan area. He's on the other side of uh, the Jordan River. He needs water because, um, well, frankly, because baptism is full immersion. So he needed a body of water where he could fully immerse people in order to baptize them. Just thought I'd clarify that real quick. But he's about 30 miles away. There's another uh, town called Bethany there. It's not the Bethany where Lazarus and his sisters live. That was just a couple miles from Jerusalem. It's, the, it's another Bethany that they can't find where the location was. That's where he appears. He appears preaching. He appears baptizing. He's hard at it right out of the gate. So I'm going to stop at this point and pray, and we'll get back to this introduction. So let's read our text, and then we'll come back to this. Verse 19 through 28, we're taking the first of what will be three days in the life of John the Baptist, his life and ministry. And here's verse 19 and following. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, And did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We have need to give an answer to those who sent us. What does, what do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ or Elijah or nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this account. As we look at uh, this three-day event in John the Baptist's life, I pray that you help us to get a full profile, a full and complete understanding, at least the intention of this portion of the scriptures in this, the fourth gospel. So help us now that we would have an accurate understanding of who John the Baptist is and why that's significant to us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So he disappears into the Judean wilderness for 30 years, as I said, until he suddenly appears. And Mark 1, 4 to 6 picks this up where Mark writes, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. 
So John, as I've mentioned before, is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's sort of a, a bridge from the Old Testament uh, way of doing things in with God's people. And he is after the intertestamental period, the 400 years after Malachi, where there was uh, no prophet speaking. God was not speaking through his prophets. And so now uh, John shows up, John the Baptist, as uh, not only a prophet of God, but also as a preacher, the first New Testament preacher of who Jesus is as the Christ. And that's John's intention. You'll remember in chapter 20 and verse 31, these things I'm writing so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Son of God. So that's his intention all the way through. And we spend the rest of our time in this gospel just seeing the ministry of Jesus Christ develop as he makes it very clear that he is, in fact, the Lord's Christ. He is, in fact, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. So, as I mentioned, there's three crucial days in the life and ministry of John the Baptist that we find from verse 19 to verse 40. So today we're looking at day one, the investigation of the messenger who was the forerunner. And that's verse 19 to 28. Day two next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the identification of the Messiah sent by the Father. The identification, here he is being identified by John the Baptist in verse 25 to 34. And then day three, the inclination of the men who became his followers, otherwise known as disciples. How is it that they were inclined to follow him? Because he's announced, declared who he is, and they just start following him. So we'll, we'll see that at that point in time. So these are days, we only know that because that's what it says, that's how it's written in the scripture. And the next day, in the next day, and in the next day in verse 29, and the next day in verse 35, and following all the way to chapter 2, where we find Jesus with his mother at the wedding at Cana. So for verses 41 to 42, we look at that as day uh, 4, where Andrew fetches his brother Peter and brings him to meet Jesus. So now we're seeing the followers. So this comes off of day 3 where we see the men inclined to become followers of Jesus Christ. Now we see Andrew was one of those disciples that was standing with John the Baptist when he declared, Behold the Lamb of God. And so now Andrew knows. So now Andrew runs in 41 and 42 to go get Peter and say, We found the Messiah. And it goes on to Nathaniel and all of the rest from there. Day 5, Philip finds Nathaniel and tells him all about Jesus. And they both go, go find him. So from from there... It just continues with the life of Jesus, and we move off of John the Baptist once again. So these three days have to do with the role that John the Baptist had, the reason that God had raised him up for such a time as this, this transitional time from the Old Testament dispensation or the way God had dealt with his people with the law of Moses and the sacrifices and so on. And now his final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, has shown up. So this is what we're looking at. So day one, the investigation of the messenger who was the forerunner. So they all, all of the uh, Jews had anticipated that there would be a forerunner, somebody who came to bring the message that Messiah is coming. He's running ahead of him. He was born before Jesus, who, 
ranks before him and he will run ahead of him to identify who he is to the people Israel so that they can let the rest of the world know that's the plan well we know what happens with plans sometimes they go awry so verse 19 let's pick it up there and this is the testimony of John that's John the Baptist when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who are you this is an investigation so he's being, there are priests and Levites that are there to ask that question. So they're intrigued by something, but we understand that when we read from Mark chapter 1, that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem, verse 5 of chapter 1, were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They're going to want to know about that, aren't they? They're going to want to know who this guy is. He's not in Jerusalem. That's where the temple's supposed to be. That's where religion happens. What's he doing out on that river? What's he doing baptizing? So that's what's taking place here. This term, the Jews, is interesting because the synoptics don't use that term in the way the only time you see the, those two words together, the Jews, is uh, typically the king of the Jews in the synoptics. And John doesn't use it racially or, or ethnically. He uses it exclusively, and he uses it 70 times in the gospel to uh, designate who those religious Jewish persons were that were vehemently opposed to the Christ. That's how he used it. So he's using it that same way here. So they're um, going to show their opposition. Right now, we can love things the best, right? So we'll say, maybe they just have an innocent question to find out who he is. Maybe, maybe they'd like to be baptized. And in fact, they show up, don't they, to be baptized. And John says, oh, yeah, well, come on, let's get you baptized. Is that what he says? No, he says something a little bit stronger than that, for which many of the pastors today would be stepping down from ministry. You brood of vipers, who sent you here? Go back and show fruits of repentance. Show the fruit, in other words, that you in fact embrace the man who is Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, the Messiah, because that will change your life. Then come back and we'll talk about getting you baptized. Makes you a little nervous about how loosely we might baptize sometimes, doesn't it? So among all the nations of the world, the Judeans should have been the ones to recognize who their Messiah was. And, and many did, but they didn't recognize him. They didn't embrace him. It was the religious leaders among them, in fact, who often led the opposition against him, remember, in a rather clandestine way, in a cloak and dagger sort of way. So the priests and Levites. So the, the Levites are those whose job was to provide the temple police. They also provided the music for the worship in the temple. So they're there. But if the role that they had in Nehemiah chapter 8, you remember when, uh, uh, when the priest was reciting the whole word, when Ezra was reading from the scriptures after they restored themselves back after the captivity, the Levites went out among, 13 of them went out among the people to help interpret what they just heard. Many of them may not speak much Hebrew. Maybe they're sp uh, speaking Chaldean and they couldn't understand. So they had that role at one time. So if they all we're saying is that if they still, if that's continued to this particular day, they would want to know what's being said. 
You see, they would want to know he's preaching out there. What's he preaching kind of thing. Otherwise, they're just in charge of the temple police and the music group. So who are you is their question. That's their lead question. Who are you? Who are you? So he clearly, John the Baptist, has become enigmatic to them. He's an intrigue to them, at the very least. And, and so that's what drives them on. The priests and Levites clearly are being sent by some person or persons, so we can assume that it's the Sanhedrin. It's the Sanhedrin who sends a group of priests and Levites said, go and find out who this man is. Find out what he has to say and what business he has baptizing people in the Jordan River and not taking care of that here. So, so John the Baptist is being confronted here. He's, he's faced with a lot of questions. So, and the, also, it, it could be the fact that he comes from a priestly family. You remember Zechariah, his father, and Elizabeth, his mother, and Zechariah was a priest. So he comes from a priestly family. So there's people that are probably more inclined to hear him just because of that. He's Zechariah's son. Uh, where's he been? Nobody, I don't know, somewhere out in the wilderness, somewhere. Just see what he's wearing. See what he eats. Right? So they're intrigued by that. Verse 20, John confessed. This is interesting, isn't it? Listen to this. John, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. So there's an emphasis here. He's emphatic here. And there's a reason why he emphatically says, I am not the Christ. They didn't ask him that. There's an assumption made here, isn't there? And John, we're starting to sense, isn't real happy with their questions or why they're there. He knows they're priests and Levites. He knows they've come some 30 miles or whatever it has been to get to see him. And he's sensing that it's not there so that they can learn about Jesus and be baptized. So let me just say straight out of the gate, I am not the Christ. I love how John has a short economy with words. Words are important, but they're even more powerful when they're few. Words carry meaning. He gets right to the meaning. You came here to find out if I'm claiming, because there were a number, remember your history, there were a number who claimed to be Christ back then. I am the Christ, I am, and then they'd get run out of town, and you'd never hear from them again. So maybe that's why they're there. So he's, he clarifies that right out of the gate. I am not the Christ. But you can sense him starting to get upset with their incessant inquiry. <clears throat> their questions keep coming. So he wants to make it perfectly clear. The Christ, this is, by the way, just to clarify something, I'm sure most, if not all of you know, Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a designation. It's a title. It's the anointed one. He is, in Hebrew, the Messiah. He is, in Greek, Christos. He is the Christ. So he's the long-awaited one. He's the anointed one. As the, their scriptures identified him in the Old Testament, he is here. He is here. So John had will reiterate this again, of course, in John chapter 3, verse 28, where he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have 
been sent before him. That's forerunner language. They would understand that, that there is going to be a forerunner that comes to announce, make way the Lord. As, as Randy read from Isaiah chapter 40, verse uh, 3 and following, so, or verse 1 through 8. So there's widespread anticipation. There's an expectation to see a forerunner and that he would come before the Messiah was coming. So there's a sense of genuineness. Maybe we can attribute to them. Maybe we'll give them that, that they really do want to know, hey, are you? And they're about to ask that question in verse 21. So he's clarifying, though, making it very clear. Luke 3, verse 15 makes it clear that this was their expectation. Luke 3.15 says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ. So there you go. I mean, there from Luke's account, he said that there was this expectation, and there were people going out to see whether or not he was the Christ. But we don't know why they wanted an answer to that question, right? They want to go find out, all right. They have an expectation, and maybe it's a good one, but we don't know for sure. So verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. You know, you'd think, like many of us, he would launch into this whole you know, explanation of who he is and, you know, uh, I'm Zechariah's son. and But he doesn't do that. He's very, very succinct and intentional with his words. And I, I find direction in that. I hope you do too. In all of this, all of Scripture, should, you should be able to find some direction in. There's some kind of work that God is doing in you and I. He doesn't have us, oh, you're just looking at John the Baptist? All right, well, I can kind of sit back and think about, you know, how the Titans are doing or what, what I'm planning for the day. No, there's always something for our eyes to be open to. He's, then they said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So by saying, are you Elijah, that's forerunner language because they expected Malachi 4 and verse 5, that there would, in anticipation or ahead of Messiah when he comes, that there would be an Elijah type that comes before him. So that's what they want to know. They want to know, is this who you are? So John's making sure that they know that he is not actually Elijah. As it says in uh, Malachi 4, 5, are you Elijah? Well, he answered truthfully, didn't he? No, I'm not. But you see, he stops there. You see the succinctness? I mean, it's like, explain why, John. Those of us who are a little bit more loquacious would have spent a little bit of time elaborating, right? So he's not doing that. He's not actually Elijah. You know, but let me give you a, a couple of other passages that sort of explain this expectation of Elijah coming before the Christ. When the disciples, the three disciples, came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, they asked some very interesting questions where this came up and Jesus answered them. So Mark 9 is where I'm talking about, verse 11 to 13. 
They're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, <clears throat> and they saw Jesus transfigured. And who else did they see up there? Moses and who? Elijah. So they come down, and these questions are starting to percolate in their thinking. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So this is a teaching that's extant in their scriptures. This is what they believe. This is what the scribes are bearing out and teaching. Verse 12, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So there's a sense in which in the second coming of Christ, Elijah himself will return. But he goes on, and how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Let's get back to what I'm here to do. He's saying, but I tell you that Elijah has come. Huh. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Who's he talking about? John the Baptist, because what happened to him? He was beheaded. He had his head summarily removed from his body by Herod because of his drunken commitment made to Salome that she would dance before his drunken friends. And he gave her that on a platter. So he's talking about there's, there's Elijah who is coming to restore all things. Well, that's not the case now. So there will be an Elijah, there will be Elijah coming in future times and the expectation of his second coming. But I tell you that Elijah has come. Okay. How about Matthew eleven thirteen to 14? Where Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, John the Baptist, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. If, so to speak, you'll allow, he's a type of Elijah that has come, in the sense that he's a forerunner to announce the coming of the Christ. Or how about Luke 1, 16 to 17? An angel of the Lord comes to Zechariah, right? So we're back at his uh, birth, John the Baptist. And, and he uh, is in the temple and he's prophesying about the coming of his son, John the Baptist. And he says, so he's making this prophecy and he says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's what he's going to do. When he comes, and he, John, will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. So it's not Elijah that came, but in the spirit and power of this Elijah role, this role of, a, of, the, of the prophet Elijah, yes, he has come. As he said earlier, this Elijah has come from Mark 9.13. So, in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he says the same thing, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. So he's a type of Elijah. He's in the spirit, carrying the power of Elijah. He is raised up by the Lord to do exactly to that, to be his messenger, 
The message is onefold and clear. The Messiah has come and he is the forerunner that they all were expecting. So all are flocking out, as the scripture says, to hear him preach and to be baptized. That's what they're investigating. So now the third question is still not done. He still hasn't answered them, though, has he? Clever rascal. Are you the prophet? So are you the prophet? Let me. Uh, so when uh, Peter was preaching in, so in Solomon's portico, he made this statement. Acts 3.22, where he's citing the Old Testament. He's citing Deuteronomy 18.15 when he says, Moses said, this is Peter preaching on Solomon's portico. And you remember that scene. The Lord will, and now he's quoting Moses. And he says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Now, who was he referring to? Who's the, going to be the second Moses or the prophet? that they need to listen to Christ. Right. So they're expecting a prophet. They just don't know which John is. Are you Elijah? Are you this prophet? No, that's actually the Messiah. And they understood that because if you would have claimed that he was the prophet that Moses was referring to, they knew that that was Messiah. So they would get him in that question. He's not looking for a way to, to make something up. And that's why I believe he's so short in his use of words. The, the best way when somebody with less than the best motives are in, uh, interrogating you is to give them the least amount of words possible. That's what he's doing. He's, we would say he smells a rat. He's, he's, he's really questioning what their motives are. He hadn't come out and said that yet. He's answering them truthfully, but only one question at a time with very few words. So are you the prophet? Well, so John the Baptist said is again, repudiated all of these questions. Are you the Christ? Are you, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? He just continues to do that. And that's where you start to sense he's, He's not real happy with this line of questioning because he really senses what they're trying to do, what they're trying to get at. So verse 22, so they said to him, <laughs> now they're just coming out and asking it, right? Who are you, right? Who are you? They're not done. They want to know. They won't stop until he tells them. They're short and they're used to words too in this interrogation, aren't they? We need, and they tell why though. They go a little further than John does by giving a reason why. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Well, we can pretty much figure who that is. It's the Sanhedrin. And those fellows are usually not up to much good, are they, that we've seen so far. So, right, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So they're pressing him for this. What do you say? Who are you then? We need to know. And now they throw in the part about we've been sent. We're priests and Levites. So you probably know who sent us. And they're like the Supreme Court in Israel. This is the highest authority in the land. You need to speak up. No pleading the fifth here. Right? And I love his response. 
So the persistent unanswered questions are frustrating them, but they're upsetting him. He's, he's put off by them. And there's a reason why. I pointed out the last time he mentioned John the Baptist, John the Apostle in his gospel, that he is the premium outside of Christ, human example of humility. He is the greatest. He doesn't want to talk about him. He came to announce another. And that's important. So his role is to bear witness. That's it. That's all he wants to do. That's who he's preaching. That's whose name he's baptizing in. It's what he's lived his entire 30-year life for. As his father prophesied, this will be his role. And it was. So here we have it. His role is to announce the Christ. Hence his responses amounted to nothing more than a series of terse and definitive answers. No, I'm not that. No, I'm not that. I will confess and not deny and confess that Jesus is the Christ. And that's all he has to say. So when they ask, who are you? They're giving up on the probing questions uh, and the suggestions they're making to try to help him. You know, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And they resolve to simply asking him straight out, you need to tell us about yourself. You need to understand why. We answer to the Sanhedrin, so so do you. That's what we have here. Verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And as we've heard, this is him. He's come. This is the forerunner. This is the type of Elijah. The spirit and power of Elijah has come to make the way straight, to make the paths straight, because the king is coming. That's his role. So he's citing, as I said, Isaiah 40, verse 3, which, by the way, is cited also in the other three Gospels. So all four Gospels cite this expression. Very clear that that's who John the Baptist is in his role. So in his typical self-effacing manner, he simply responds to who he is. Instead of going into detail again, oh, well, you may have known my, my dad. He was uh, Zechariah. He was a priest. Oh, I was that guy that couldn't talk for a while, right? Yeah, that's him. Yeah, he made the mistake of doubting that my mom and he would be able to have a child at you know their advanced age, but he suffered for it. But blah, 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 blah. I'm a voice. I'm a voice. That's it. I'm a voice that's crying. It's crying out. Make way for the Lord. Prepare yourselves for the coming of the King. For Messiah is here. That's all he gives them. He's not crying from a palace or some throne. He's not crying from crying out from a position of notoriety or authority that would give him the authority then to just cry these things out so definitively 
That's all I am. Look at what I'm wearing, for goodness sake. Do I look like royalty? Do you? I'm eating locusts and honey here. You want some? I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I am a voice. When you speak words, they don't belong to you anymore, do they? They're gone. They've escaped from your mouth, and a lot of them you might prefer you could retrieve, but you can't, <laughs> and we regret that. That's all he is. So he's not even a body. He's a voice box. He's a mouth that's proclaiming something. He's declaring something. Make way. The Lord has come. So he never gives himself any prominence at all in his life, in his role. And his role, when you say it's an important one, yeah. Yeah. Even Jesus says in another place, there's none greater than John the Baptist. There's no one greater. Why? Because he's the absolute lowest among men. Absolute lowest. And he proves that in things that he says that are coming up as well. So this word crying, ba'ao in the Greek, boao, it's a, the definition is a, it's a command or exhortation given with a loud voice as by a herald. That's exactly what he was doing. He was crying out an announcement, a declaration. This wilderness that John was crying out from, this wilderness that he lived in was absolutely appropriate as a metaphor for the hearts and the religion, the way they had made it. Dead, dry, wildernesses are filled with beasts. Deserts are dry and without living water. There's no life in them. The metaphors are striking, both where he lived and in his announcement. Make a way straight. The one who is the living water has come because he is the life and the life is the light of men. That's him. That's him. This is the one he proclaims. So this is, this is something that they've done in their own hearts. So the proclamation is to essentially say, we would say in our way of expressing it, make your hearts ready. Because Messiah is here. And if he's there every Sunday being preached from the pulpit, you should hear the same proclamation. Get your heart ready because the Messiah is here, quite literally. And he is speaking. He is not silent. So make straight the way of the Lord is the expression he uses. So in other words, don't cause him to have to climb over a pile of your dead religious lumber? Don't do that. Don't make the way straight. Don't make him rummage through the trash heap of your hypocrisies. Make your way straight. Deal with your heart is what he's saying. Cleanse your heart. Prepare to receive the Christ. Don't cause him to have to come looking for you in the wilderness wanderings of your worldliness. Make the way straight. Prepare your hearts to receive Christ or you will not receive him. 
He's not going to crawl over the pile of the dead lumber of the religions that we've self-made. Can that, did that just happen at his time with the Pharisees and such? Huh? Can that happen today? Oh, as we would say in Wisconsin, oh, you betcha. Oh, why do we do that? Why do we do that? Rummaging through the trash heap of our hypocrisies or making him chase after us as we run through the wilderness wanderings of our worldliness. We need to hear that clarion voice, don't we? From John the Baptist. Like how often do we need to hear that? Like often, today, now, So John the Baptist had a single message. Prepare your hearts to receive the Messiah. Be ready to repent. And there's a reason. They were so long calloused in the dead religion that they were engaged in like corpses. That it's going to take some time. You've got to get prepared. If Messiah sees you like this, you'll resist him. That's why he said his first thing out of his mouth, at least in Matthew's account, is repent for what? The kingdom of God is what? Going to be here eventually? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Make your heart ready to receive the Lord. Deal with those categories I was talking about. That's what he's saying to me. Don't make him climb around and the sewerage of your thoughts and your heart or run around through the worldliness trying to find you. He's got a single task, not only a single message, but a single task. Identify the Messiah when he comes and point him out. There he is. There he is. Eke agnas dei. Eke agnas dei. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed, blessed are those whose hearts are ready to receive him. Verse 24. Oh, there it is. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And he knew it. Verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If, if you're just a voice crying from the wilderness, we get that that comes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, Elijah, the prophet, what are you doing baptizing? They had other understandings for baptizing. The Pharisees, these are, it, it literally means separated ones, ones that are separated. They separated themselves. They were the religious, moralistic legalists. Separate from everybody else with their long robes and their tassels and their phylacteries and all the rest and all of the things that they abided by in the dead religious lumber that they practiced. So they had an emphasis on the outward religious practice which served only to bolster their spiritual pride. So the pride is what's being pricked here, we can assume. Right? 
To Jaitic Judaistic uh, eschatology or proselytizing, they used it for both. They used it for both the Essene group that was out by Qumran. They were in a wilderness, right? So somebody proclaiming in the wilderness that there would have to be a washing. Does that remind you of an Old Testament major prophet's proclamation, Ezekiel thirty six, twenty six and twenty seven? He's going to. Sprinkle and make clean your heart. He's going to wash you with the water of his word. When Messiah comes, he will wash us. So the Essenes, so they understood that when Messiah comes, this washing would be taking place. That's part of the preparatory work. Is that what you're doing? It's also baptizing to them was in their proselytizing. Whenever Gentiles would be converted to Judaism, they would wash them ritualistically to wash away whatever uh, impurities in terms of their former Gentile life they had. So they, they used the word, they were baptizing both in their eschatology, what they were looking for in coming, and in their proselytizing. So this isn't unfamiliar to them. They want to know, which is it with you? What are you doing? The next question would be the same question they ran out and put before Jesus, who gave you this authority? You know that's coming, right? Well, for whatever God's reasons are, he manages to avoid that question. So verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water. And they had to have been thinking, priests and Levites, so do we. But among you stands one you do not know. Now, do you see what he's doing? Anytime a question comes at him, what does he do? Get it off of me. I'm of little importance here. I won't have my head soon. He didn't know that, probably. But I'm incidental, just like you and I are. I'm incidental. So, so there's one here. And maybe what part of what was the impetus to, to say that you do not know is his disappointment, his being upset that they're rejecting Messiah. You don't know him. I baptize with water. And he says in the synoptics that when Jesus comes, what will he baptize with? The Holy Spirit. And in another uh, gospel, he says the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. It's going to burn away the impurities. He's, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. I baptize with water. It's just H2O. It's just water. It's, imp- it's not unimportant. Don't misunderstand me. It's not unimportant. Baptism's important. It's important to John the Baptist. He knows that there must be a, a public declaration that you've died to your former life you've died the death with christ romans 6 and you've been risen to new life and you will be resurrected when you die right so it's not unimportant 
But he's trying to get the attention off the one who is important, and that is Jesus Christ. So in verse 31, when we get to that next time, uh, in fact, John discloses that the purpose of his baptizing with water was so that Christ might be revealed. That's what he says in that verse. That's why I'm baptizing, but it's symbolic. It's so that Christ might be revealed. If Christ is revealed, these people will confess that. They will make their confession. They will repent, and then they will be baptized. That's exactly what Peter calls for in his sermon, right? In Acts, repent and be baptized. That's the order of things. Nothing conferring of grace there. It's simply symbolic, but symbolic of something that we hope actually took place where? In our hearts. He knows that's not what they're interested in, but they can't see that. And that's why prepare yourselves. I don't know what you've made of your religion, but you need to prepare yourself because Messiah is here. And if we don't tremble somewhat to that, we don't have a proper fear of God because he is in fact the son of God. So in verse 33, according to verse 33, it was God who sent him to baptize with water. So he's sent by God. He's baptizing with water so that Christ might be revealed, as it says in verse 31. So he says, among you stands one you do not know. So this, of course, is their fundamental problem, isn't it? You don't know who he is. Not really. You've created a religion for yourself. But you don't know him. And nobody wants to hear Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, do they? No. I depart from me. I, I never knew you. That's got to be one of the most horrifying words that a human being could ever hear. I thought, I thought I knew you. And that's why we sang that wonderful song. Forgive me, Lord, for what I've made of this religion because it cost you your life and you willingly did that to give of yourself so that I might have the penalties of my sin paid for and that I might be set free from even the power of sin. So they fail to recognize their Messiah and John knows that, so that's what he says. You don't know him. John, you could say, has a, what we would call a one-track mind. Wouldn't you say He's like a pit bull with one message, and it's like you can't get him off of it. You can't. This is it. So no matter what they threw at him, he stayed on track for what he was sent to proclaim. He is the forerunner, and he's doing it as sent by God. So he immediately points them to Christ in his unmatchable, unmistakable greatness, and he continues to do that throughout his whole ministry on earth. Verse 27, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things, verse 28, took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So in his characteristic way, he speaks of his own personal unworthiness. I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. So untying the sandal straps of another was the job. Uh, it was not, that, 
there's many ways that disciples, those followers of a rabbi, would serve the rabbi. Uh, they served them in many ways. But actually, even disciples didn't do that. Even disciples did not untie the rabbi's sandals. The lowest, lowest of the low slaves, bond slaves, did that. It's an old rabbinic phrase dated from 250 A.D. or, or thereabouts that says, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thong. End quote. So that's what John uses. That's what John uses. That's got to be getting the disciples' attention. Yeah? Yeah. John says, I am not worthy to untie. It's hard to imagine how humility could get much lower. But the lower your humility goes, the higher your voice is heard. It's pride that mutes our message. It's humility that allows him, who is humility itself personified, not John, but Jesus, which allows him to show up. It's when we're humble. This is John, a messenger from God, the forerunner of the Messiah. This is who they're investigating. The Son of God, he's bold and he's fearless and he's humble. That, my friends, is to be our description. You see, John, the Baptist, has one thing in common with us. We may not be forerunners, but he's human and he's been given a message. And now, back then, he was the witness for Christ. Today, who's, who's the witness for Jesus Christ? church you and I he had one message behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world make yourselves ready by preparing your heart to receive him repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins I invite all of us now to do just that Messiah is here He's here in spirit and he's here through his words that were just now preached. They've been proclaimed into your hearing. What you do with that is between you and him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your patience with us. Lord, we, we so, so grieve it when we look at the things that we've made, this wonderful faith that you've so graciously given to us as a gift, the greatest gift ever given. We, we fear when we look at our hearts and the small quarter we give you in our hearts when the entire chamber is to be your home. So Lord, for those who have never met you, those who thought they did, but they were just resigned to a particular risk, a religion called Christianity. 
Lord, may they know you in a very real way, even now, in this moment. Those who hear this message, the voice of John the Baptist is eternal because the message is eternal, because you are eternal. John the Baptist is gone, but your voice continues to proclaim. It's been proclaimed here today. So I pray, O Lord, examine our hearts to see if we're in the faith, lest we be disqualified. Lord, we beseech you that we would not hear you say when we stand before you, depart from me, I never knew you. So may now be the time that we be fully reconciled with you and that you would wash our hearts with the water of your word so that you might be glorified in all of these things is our greatest hope. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.